Hello and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for KFF Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, October 19th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Lauren Weber of the Washington Post. Hello, hello. And Joanne Cannon of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Politico. Hi, everybody. Later in this episode, we'll have my interview with Arielle Zients, who reported and wrote the latest KFF Health News NPR Bill of the Month about how chemotherapy can cost five times more in one state than in another. But first, this week's news. So it's October 19th. The House of Representatives is still without a speaker. That's two and a half weeks now. That means legislation can't move. Are there health care items that are starting to stack up? And what would it mean if the House ends up with an anti-federal government conservative like Representative Jim Jordan, who, at least as of this moment, is not yet the speaker and does not yet look like he has the votes? So in terms of unfinished healthcare business, the three big things we're tracking are things that actually lapsed at the end of September. Congress did manage to keep the government open, but they allowed three big healthcare things to fall by the wayside. And those are PEPFAR, the Global HIV AIDS Program, the Support Act, the Programs for Opioids and Addiction, and PAPA, the Public Health Pandemics Biohazards Big Bill. And so those... I think one of those P's stands for preparedness, right? (laughs) Exactly, yes. But it's related to pandemics. Um, And you would think after all we just went through that that would be more of a priority, but here we are. The reauthorization of all three of those is just dangling out there. And it's unclear if and when Congress can act on them. There is some level of bipartisan support for all of them, but that is what is stacking up. And nothing is really happening on those fronts, according to my conversations with sources on the Hill, because everything is just ground to a halt because of the speaker mess. And of course, we're less than a month away from the current continuing resolution running out again. And we may go through... Who knows? They may get a new speaker and then he may lose his job or her job once they try to keep the government open in November. It's a mess. I've never seen anything. But also, in addition to those three very political, even public health and pandemics are now politics that Alice correctly pointed out, these three huge ideological, how are we going to get them reauthorized in the next 30 days? But there's also more routine things that are not controversial, but are caught up in this, such as community health center funding, which is a bipartisan support, but they need their probes and all that stuff. So in addition to these sort of red-blue fights, there's just how do we keep the doors open for people who need access to health care. That's not the only program. There are many day-to-day programs that, like everything else in the government, are up in the air. I mean, we should point out this is unprecedented. The only other time the House has been without a speaker this long was one year when they didn't come in at the beginning of the Congress until later in January. It's literally the only time. There's never been a mid-session speakerless House, so everything that happens from here is unprecedented. Well, meanwhile, if you have turned on a TV in the past week, you already know this, but Medicare open enrollment began last Sunday, October 15th. To be clear, when you first become eligible 
eligible for Medicare, you can sign up anytime in the three months before or after your birthday. But if you enroll in a private Medicare Advantage plan or a private prescription drug plan, and most people are in one or the other or both, open enrollment is when you can add or change coverage. This used to be pretty straightforward, but it's only gotten more confusing as private plans have proliferated. This year, the Biden administration is trying to fight back against some of the misleading marketing efforts. Politico reports that it has rejected it, the government, has rejected some 300 different ads. Is that enough to quell the confusion? I'm already seeing ads and kind of looking, it's like, I don't think that says what it means to say. Yeah, we see this every year. It's a ton of ads. It's a barrage of ads that all say, hey, this plan is going to get you X, Y, Z, and that's better than traditional Medicare. But you got to read the fine print. And I think that is the big thing for all the folks that are looking at this every time, you know, open enrollment is very confusing. And a lot of times people are trying to sell you things that are not what they appear. So it does appear that there has been more movement to crack down on those ads. But, you know, look, the family members I talk to are still confused. So I don't know how much that's proliferating down quite yet. And even if the ads were honest, our health system is so confusing. I mean, even if you're in an employer health system, like all of us are employed, all of us get insurance at work. And None of us really know we have made the best choice, right? I mean, like, you need a crystal ball to know what illness you and your relatives are going to get that year and what the co-pays and deductibles for that specific condition. We, I, I've never been sure. I have three choices. They're all decent, whether it's the best for me and my family. With all that I know about healthcare. I still don't know I made the best choice because I don't have a crystal ball or like not one that works. Right. I also have choices and I did my mom's Medicare for, for you years. You did a great as piece Joanne on remembers. that I, I did do a piece on that a long time ago when they were first starting the prescription drug benefit. And, you know, you had to sort of sign up via computer. And in 2006, not that many seniors knew how to use computers. Um, at least we're sort of over that. But there's still complaints about, you know, the, the official website, Medicare.gov, which does a pretty good job. It's just got an awful lot of steps. It's one of those things. It's like, OK, set aside two hours. And that's if you know what you're doing to do this. So meanwhile, if this isn't all confusing enough, open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act opens in two weeks. And while Medicare open enrollment ends December 15th, ACA enrollment goes through January 15th in most, but not every state. In both cases, if you get your insurance through Medicare or through the ACA, you should look to see what changes your plan might be making. I should say also if it's open enrollment for your employer insurance. Plans make changes pretty much every year. So you may end up, even if you're in the same plan, with a plan that you don't like or a plan that you don't like as much as you like it now. This is insanely complicated, as you point out, for everybody with insurance. Is there any way to make it easier? There's no politically palatable way to make it easier. And then things they've done to try to make it easier, like consistent claims forms, which most of us don't have to fill out anymore. Most of that's done online, but they're not using consistent claim forms. And there's nothing simple, and there's nothing that's getting simpler. And, like, we're all savvy. It's it's what keeps their bill of the month project in business. It's Like, we're all pretty savvy, and none of us are smart enough to solve every healthcare problem of us and our family. It's one of those things where compromise actually makes for complexity. When policymakers can't do something they really want to, they do something smaller and more incremental. And so what you end up with is this built on in every which way kind of healthcare system that nobody knows how it works. Like the year I hurt both a finger and a toe and I had a deductible for the finger, but not for the toe. Explain that. <laughs> I assume it was in and no, out of network, network or not even. 
All of my digits are in network. <laughs> I just got a COVID test bill from 2020 that I had previously knocked down by calling, but they, they rebuilt me again. And because I am a savvy healthcare reporter, I was like, I'm not paying this. I know that I don't have to pay this, but it took probably 10 hours to resolve. I mean, and that's not even picking insurance. So I'm just saying, you know, it, it's an incredibly complex marketplace. Shout out to Vox, who had a really nice series that, that tried to make it easier for people to understand you know, the differences between Medicare, Medicare Advantage, open enrollment, what that all means. If you haven't seen that and you're confused about your insurance options, I would highly recommend it. And I will link to the to the Vox series, which is really good. But it's just it was kind of looking at it. I mean, they had to write like six different stories. It's like that's how confusing things are, which is really kind of sad here. But uh, let, we will we will move on because we're not going to solve this one today. So speaking of things that are complicated and getting more so, let's turn to reproductive health. Alice, the big event that people on both sides are waiting for, one of those events at least, is a ballot measure in Ohio that would establish a state constitutional right to abortion. So far, every state ballot measure we've seen has gone in favor of the abortion's right side. How are abortion opponents trying to flip the script here? So I was in Ohio uh, a couple weeks ago and was really focused on that very question, just what are they doing differently? How are they learning lessons from all of the losses last year? And why do they think Ohio will be any different? I will say, since my piece came out, there was the first poll I've seen of how people are approaching the November referendum, and it showed overwhelming support for the abortion rights side, just like in every other state. So have that color what I'm about to say next, which is that the anti-abortion side thinks they can win because they have a lot of structural factors working in their favor. They have the governor of Ohio really actively campaigning against the amendment. So that's in contrast to like Whitmer in Michigan last year campaigning actively for it. You know, when you have a fairly popular governor, that does have an impact. They're, they're a known trusted voice to many. Also, And the governor of Ohio is also a former senator and I mean a really well-known guy. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. You just have the entire state structure working to defeat this amendment. They tried in a special election in August to change the rules. That didn't work. Now, you know, you you just have all of these top officials, you know, using their bully pulpit and their platforms to try to steer the vote in the anti-abortion direction. Also, the actual campaign itself is trying to learn lessons from last year and doing a few things differently. They're going really aggressively after the African-American vote, particularly through churches, black churches. And so that's not something I saw in the states I reported on last year. And they're really aggressively going after the student vote. And I went to a student campus event at Ohio State that the anti-abortion side was holding and it seemed pretty effective. There was a ton of confusion among the students. A lot of the students are like, wait, didn't we just vote on this? Referring to the August special. They said, wait a minute, which side means yes and which side means no. There was just rampant confusion and it wasn't helped. You know, I observed the anti-abortion side telling people some, some misleading things about what the amendment would and wouldn't do. And so all of that could definitely have an impact. But like I said, since my story came out, a poll came out showing really strong support for the abortion rights amendment, which would block the state's six-week ban, which is now held up in court, but, you know, the court leans pretty far to the right. This would block that from going back into effect, potentially. 
Ohio, the the ultimate swing state, probably the reddest swing state in the country. But Ohio is not the only state having an off-year election next month. Virginia doesn't have an abortion measure on the ballot, but its entire state house and Senate are up for re-election. And from Almost every ad I've seen from Democrats, uh, it mentions abortion. And there's a lot of ads here in the Washington, D.C. area for some of the Virginia elections. Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin, who's not on the ballot this year, thinks he has a way of talking about abortion that might give his side the edge. Um, What are we going to be able to tell from the ultimate makeup of the very narrowly divided Virginia legislature when this is all said and done? It won't be veto-proof. He's unlike North Carolina now. I mean, even if it's the Democrats hold the one chamber they have or win both of them. And it's really close. And, we, you know, these are very closely divided. So we really don't know how it's going to turn out. But, I mean, he... Yeah. he one year it was so close they that they had literally raffle, they, had to, to draw rocks out of a bowl. Yeah, right. There's highly unlikely that there will be a scenario where there's a really strongly Democratic legislature with a Republican governor. That's not likely. What's likely is a very narrowly divided, and we don't know who has the edge in which chamber. So the governor can't just do things unilaterally, but it'll, you know, how it plays out. And Youngkin's backing a 15-week ban with some exceptions after that for life and health. And a year ago, that would have seemed like an extreme measure. And now it seems moderate, right? I mean, compared to zero weeks and no exceptions. So Virginia's a red state. It swung blue. It was now, you know, reddish again. I mean, it's it's a swing state. It's, it's not a swing state so much in presidential, but on the ground, it's a swing state. And But I guess that's what I was getting at was, was Youngkin's trying to sort of paint his support as something that's moderate. The, that's the, that's mean, how he's been trying to thread this needle because... You know, he comes across as moderate, and then he comes across as more conservative. And, you know, on abortion, what's moderate now? I mean, in the current landscape among Republican governors, you could say his is moderate. But Alice follows the politics more closely, but half the country doesn't think that's moderate. If the Democrats retain or win both houses of the legislature, I mean, will that send us a message about abortion, or is that just going to send us a message about Virginia being a very narrowly divided state? (laughs) I think both. I think Joanna's right in that the polling and the voting record over the last year reflect that a lot of people are not buying the idea that 15 weeks is moderate. And a lot of polls show that when presented the choice between a total ban and total protections, even people who are uncomfortable with the idea of abortions later in pregnancy opt for total protections. And so you've seen that play out. At the same time, there's a lot of people on the right who correctly argue that the vast majority of abortions happen before 15 weeks, and so 15 weeks is not going far enough. And they're not in favor of that as so-called compromise or moderate policy. Um, and so there it, are no compromises in abortion. Truly, if we've learned truly. anything, we've learned that. And and you know, when you try to please everyone, sometimes you please no one, as as we've seen, you know, with both candidates and policies that try to thread this needle. And so I I think it will be a really interesting test because, yes, right now the legislature is sort of the firewall between what the governor wants to do on abortion. And whether that will continue to be true is a really interesting question. Meanwhile, we have dueling abortion reversal lawsuits going on in both Colorado and California. Abortion reversal, for those who don't follow all the jargon, uh, is the concept of interrupting the two medication regime for abortion by pill. And instead of taking the second medication, the pregnant person takes large doses of the hormone progesterone. Uh, The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says there is no evidence that this works to reverse a medication abortion and that it's unethical for doctors to prescribe 
describe it, but in Colorado, a Christian health clinic is charging that a state law that bans the practice offering abortion reversal violates their freedom of religion. In California, it's actually the opposite. The state attorney general is suing a pregnancy crisis center for false advertising promoting the practice. Alice, how big a deal could this fight over abortion reversal become? And that's assuming that the pill remains widely available, which is going to be decided by yet another lawsuit. Yeah, absolutely. Although it'll be a long time before we know whether Mifepristone is legally you know, available on a federal basis. But I've been watching this sort of bubble up for years, but it's up till now been more of a rhetorical fight in terms of abortion re- reversal is a thing. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Here's my expert saying it is. Here's my expert saying it's not. Um, but this is really moving it into a more sort of concrete legal realm and not just rhetoric. And so it is an escalation and, and it will be interesting to see. Mainstream healthcare organizations do not support this practice. There was, you know, a, a, a clinical trial of it going on that was actually called off because of the potential dangers involved, risks to participants. Of doing the abortion reversal method of trying of exactly. trying to interrupt yes. a medication abortion. Yes, this is... <laughs> really on the cutting edge of where medicine and politics are clashing right now. Yeah, we're going to, we'll see how it, and of course, if they end up in different places, this could be something else that ends up in front of the Supreme Court. And this is, I think, less of an argument about religious freedom than an argument about the ability of medical organizations to determine what is or isn't, you know, standard of practice based on evidence. I mean, I guess in the, in some ways it becomes the same thing as the broader Mifepristone case, where it's like, do you trust the FDA to determine what's safe? And now it's like, do you trust ACOG and the AMA and other organizations of doctors to decide what's, you know, what should be allowed. But I mean, progesterone is used, has medical purposes. It's used to prevent miscarriages, but it's off-label. It's, it goes into these other questions, which all of, all of us have written about, and ivermectin, and who gets to, you know, it, it, legal substances, and how do you use them properly, and what's the danger? And um, there's a bunch of them. I think the fight over standard of care has really become the next frontier in medical lawsuits. I mean, we've all written about this, but ivermectin, obviously, you know, misinformation, prescribing hydroxychloroquine, all of these things are now getting into the legal field. Is that the standard of care? What is the standard of care and how does that play out? So I I agree with you. I think this is going to end up by the Supreme Court and I think it has much broader implications than just for mifepristone and abortion drugs too. Yeah, I I do too. Well, finally, in an update I did not have on my post-Row bingo card, it appears that vasectomies are up in some states, including Oregon, where abortion is still legal, and Oklahoma, where it's not very widely available. Um, Are men finally taking more responsibility for not getting the women they have sex with pregnant? That would be a big sea change. Yeah, uh, we've been hearing anecdotally um, that this has been the case, definitely since Dobbs. And and even before that, as abortion restrictions were were mounting, Politico magazine did a did a nice piece on this last year, profiling a vasectomy mobile van. And it's also just fascinating. And a lot of people have been highlighting just how few restrictions on vasectomies there are compared to more permanent sterilization for women. No waiting periods, no, you know, no fighting um, uh, about it. And so um, it does provide an interesting contrast there. I know there have been stories over the years about how the d- demand for vasectomies goes up right before the NCAA tournament and in March and April because men figure that they can just recuperate while watching basketball. I thought that was um, a myth but- and I looked it up and it's absolutely true. <laughs> it is absolutely true. <laughs> 
I mean, the, the, it also seems to be more common among older men who've had a family and because it's permanent. I mean, usually permanent. It's usually permanent. And, right, you know, it's, it's one thing to decide after a certain point in your life when you've already had your kids. I mean, it's not going to be an option for younger men who haven't had children. It's also reliable, which, you know, you don't, it is one of those things that you don't even have to that, Even that, even though I looked up the figures once, there's, it's a very, very low failure rate, but it's not zero. True. <laughs> we are moving on to what I call this week in declining life expectancy. Um, I am glad that Lauren is back with us because the Washington Post has published the next pieces of its deep dive into the U.S. population's declining life expectancy. And we're going to start with a story that was co-written by Lauren, but that is Joanne's extra credit this week. So Joanne, you start and then Lauren, you can chime in. Okay. It's how Lunchables ended up on school lunch trays. For those of you who have never been in a supermarket or who have closed your eyes in certain aisles, Lunchables are heavily processed, encased in plastic, small lunch boxes of a, it's not even much of a meal or small, which you can buy in the supermarket. And now two of them have been modified so that they're allowed in schools as healthy enough. And they're, they're quote unquote like balanced because it's a little piece of meat and a little piece it's, of cheese. It's, they have and, so far just a um, turkey cheese option that qualifies for schools and a pizza that qualifies for schools. Not a whole pizza, a little. But the kid in the story, the second grade in the story, didn't even know it was turkey. It has 14 ingredients. He thought it was ham. So um, I mean, that just sort of says it. But it's beyond like the lack of nutrition. It started out sort of like, what is this child putting in his mouth and why is it called school lunch? But the story was deeper because it went into it was a very long investigation by Lauren and Dan Keating on the relationship between the, the food industry, the trade group and the government regulation and just say it leaves a lot to be desired. And you should all read the story only because you can click on the story of the oversized cheese it. <laughs> I mean, it's a fake one, but the the replica of this like like as big as the planet Mars. I mean, it's just this like huge cheese it, and it's a really good story because it's over processed food is really bad for us. And you can not can I mean scientists have you know matched the rise of this over processed stuff that began as food and the rise of obesity in America. And, you know, it's not just taking the salt out of it, which they're doing sodium out of or adding a little calcium or something to these processed foods. They're ultra processed foods. And that's not what our body needs. So Lauren, what I mean, how does this relate to the to the rest of this declining life expectancy project? And, and what else is there to come? This is our big tranche of stories. I mean, we should have some follows, but that's it. Well, Joanne, thank you for the kind words on it. We we really appreciate that. But I mean, I think the point that she made that I want to highlight for this in general is what was wild in investigating the story is pizza sauce is a vegetable in the US when it comes to school lunch and french fries are also a vegetable. And that's really all you need to sum up how the industry influence in Congress has resulted in what kids are having for their school lunch today. You know, one of the things we got to do for the story is go to the National School Nutrition Association Conference, which is where we saw the giant cheese in. And it's this massive trade fair of all these companies where they throw like parties for the school nutrition personnel to try all the different food. And it's wild to see in real life. And what Joanne made a good point of about ultra processed food And what the rules do right now is they don't consider the integrity of the food. They set limits on calories and sodium, but they don't consider what kids are actually eating. And so you end up with these ultra processed foods that growing body of research suggests really have some negative health consequences for you. And so, you know, as as Joanne talks about and as our series gets into, 
obesity is a real problem in this country. And obesity has huge, long-lasting, life-shortening impacts. You know, one of the folks we talked to for the piece, Michael Moss, said he worries that processed food is the new tobacco because he feels like smoking's going down, but obesity's going up. And something he said to me that didn't make the piece, but I thought was really interesting, is that at some point he thinks there'll be some sort of class action lawsuit against ultra processed food, uh, much like a cigarette lawsuit. Like with tobacco. Like a tobacco yeah. lawsuit, like an opioid lawsuit. And I, I think that's kind of interesting to think about. But this was just one of the many life expectancy stories. I want to shout out my colleague Francis Stead-Seller's story, which talked about how it compared, it was brilliant, it compared two sisters with rheumatoid, or with rheumatoid arthritis, one who lives in the U.S. and one who lives in Portugal. They're both from Portugal. The one in Portugal has all this fabulous primary health care. The doctors even like call her on Christmas and are like, we're worried you're going to have traditional cherries that could interact with your, like chocolate cherries with brandy that would interact with your medicine. Whereas the one in the U.S. has to like go to the ER all the time because she doesn't have steady health care and she can't seem to make it work ends, ends meet. She doesn't have a primary health care system. She's a disjointed doctor system. And the other story is the sister in the U.S. who has this severe health problem is moving to Portugal because it's just so much better there for primary care. And I I think that gets at, you know, a lot of what our, our stories on life expectancy have talked about, which is that, you know, primary care, preventative care in the U.S. is not a priority. And it results in a lot of downstream consequences that are shortening America's life expectancy. Well, I hope when this project is, is all published that you put all the stories together and like send them to every school of public health in the United States. That would be fairly useful. I bet public health professors would appreciate it. <laughs> well, um, thank you. So it is it is mid-October. That means it is time for the annual KFF survey of employer health insurance. And for the first time since the pandemic, most premiums are up markedly, an average of 7% from 2022 to 2023, with indications of even larger increases coming for 2024. Now, to people People like me and Joanne, who've been doing this for a long time, lived through years of double-digit increases in the early 2000s. 7% doesn't seem that big, but today the average family health insurance premium is about the same as the cost of a small car. So is there a breaking point for the employer health system? I mean, you know, one of the things, to, to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, one of the, the ways, one of the compromised ways we've kept sort of the system functional is by allowing these pieces to remain in pieces employers have wanted to offer health insurance. It's an important fringe benefit to help attract workers, but you're paying $25,000 a year for a family plan unless you're a really big company. And even if you're a really big company, it's an awful lot of money. You know, one of the things that struck me is we're at a point when there's we've had a lot of strikes and sort of reactivated labor movement. But like 20 years ago, the fights were about the cost of health care. You know, the famous Verizon strike, there were big strikes that were about health care, the cost. And right now, I'm not really hearing that too much. I'm sure it's part of the conversation, but the, it's not the top. It's not the headline of what these strikes are about. They're about, you know, salaries mostly and working conditions and um, with, with nurses and ratios and things like that. I'm not hearing health care costs, but I'm, I, I sort of think we will. <laughs> like that, you know, because yes, we are being subsidized by our employers, most of us. But, you know, you said, what's the breaking point? Well, apparently there isn't one, right? It's just we, we've asked ourselves that every single year. And when do we stop doing it? No one has a good answer for that. And related is to what Lauren was just talking about, life expectancy, the lack of primary care in this country. 
would probably, in, in addition to improving our health, it would probably bring down costs. We used to spend six cents on the dollar on primary care, six cents. Other countries spend a lot more. Now we're down to like four and a half cents. So like the stuff that keeps you well and spots problems and has somebody who recognizes when something's going wrong in you because you're their patient as opposed to, there's nothing, I mean, urgent care, I don't mean that urgent care doesn't have a place, you know, it does, but it's not the same thing as somebody who gives you continuity of care. So these are all related. I'll stop. It's a mess. <laughs> Someone else can say it's a mess now. <laughs> it's definitely a mess. And, and we are not going to fix it today, but we will keep, we will keep Maybe trying. Maybe next week. All right. <laughs> yeah, maybe next week. That is this week's news. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with Ariel Science, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast my KFF Health News colleague, Arielle Zients, who reported and wrote the latest KFF Health News NPR Bill of the Month installment. Arielle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So this month's patient is grappling with a grave cancer diagnosis, a toddler, and some inexplicable bills from hospitals in two different states. Tell us a little bit about her. Sure. So Emily Gable is from Alaska and has a husband and two young kids. She homeschools them. She really likes the outdoors, reading, foraging. And she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Just something that makes me so sad is she found out when she was basically breastfeeding because she felt a lump. And then when she was diagnosed, her baby was asleep in her arms when she got that call. So it just really shows what it's like to be a mom and to have cancer. She was living in Juneau at the time. Her friends who've had cancer suggested we wanted to go to a bigger city. Whether it's true or not, the idea was, okay, bigger cities are going to have bigger care. Juneau is not a big city, and it's you cannot drive there. You have to take a ferry or you have to fly. In. And this is the capital of Alaska, so that might... Yes, I've been there. It's very picturesque and very small and very hard to get to. <laughs> yeah, so that might be surprising for some people. <laughs> the closest major American city is Seattle. So she went there for her surgery, and then she decided to have chemo. And she opted for this special type of chemo that uses lower dose, but more frequent doses. The idea is that it creates less of the side effects. And she went to this standalone clinic in Seattle, flying there every week. It's not a quick flight. It can take up to two hours and 45 minutes. And that just got really tiring. I mean, physically. And she's got kids at home. <laughs> yes, physically and mentally and just taking up time. So she decided to switch to the local hospital in Juneau. So they, they had bills from the first clinic in Seattle and then they got some estimates from the one in Juneau and then finally got a bill from there as well. Yes, as we say, then the bill came. And boy, there was a big difference between the same chemotherapy in Seattle and in Juneau, Alaska, right? I compared two of Emily's treatments that used a similar mix of drugs and also had overlapping non-drug charges, such as how much it cost for the first hour of treatment, subsequent hours. And in the Seattle clinic... One round cost about $1,600. And then in Juneau, it cost more than $5,000, so more than three times higher. And we were able to look at specific charges. So that first hour of chemo was $1,000 in Juneau, which is more than twice the rate in the Seattle clinic. There was a drug that 
cost more than three times the price at the clinic. And then even like the cheaper charges were more expensive. So the hospital charged $19.15 for Benadryl, which is about 22 times the price at the clinic, which was 87 cents. Now, to be clear, the Gable family seems to have pretty comprehensive insurance. So this case wasn't as much about their out-of-pocket costs as some of the other bills of the month that we've covered. But they did want to know why there was such a big difference and what did they and we find out? Yeah, so we started the story for NPR. We basically started saying, hey, this is a little different than the other ones because The family has met their maximum out-of-pocket. For the year. Yes. Once you pay a certain amount of money for the year, your insurance will cover everything. And that can be a high number, but if you have cancer, cancer is expensive, so you will probably hit it at some point. By the time she switched her treatment to Juno, she had met that, so she wouldn't actually owe anything. But what did they find out? nevertheless, about why it costs that much more in Juneau than it did in in Seattle. Yes. So Jared, her husband, he is somewhat of a self-taught medical billing expert. He gained this knowledge by listening to Bill of the Month and then reading some books about this. So, I mean, at first he, he thought maybe they would owe money, but then he learned they wouldn't. But he still didn't think it was fair. I mean, he didn't think it was fair for the insurance companies. And he did catch two errors. One of them, an estimate was wrong. The hospital said, oh, it looks like there was a computer error. And that was lowered. And then when it came for the actual bill, there was a coding error. It made one of the drugs not covered when it should have been. So that would have actually left them with out-of-pocket costs. So he was able to, you know, lower an estimate lower the bill. But again, even with those changes, it was still so much more expensive. And that's when I called some experts. And someone's gut reaction or initial hypothesis might be, well, of course it's more expensive in Alaska. Alaska is small. It's remote. I mean, it's just going to cost more to ship things there. You need to pay doctors more to entice them to live there. And it costs more for doctors to live there anyway, right? The cost of living is high in Alaska. Yes. The expert I spoke with, an economist who has studied this issue, he said, yes, that is part of it. Like you said, everything is more expensive in Alaska. But even when accounting for that, the prices are even higher. So like the growth of cost in the healthcare sector in Alaska is higher than the growth of overall costs. And he listed some policies or trends that might explain that. There's one that really stood out, which is something called the 80th percentile rule. But it was meant to contain cost for when you're seen by out-of-network providers. And it seems that it may have actually backfired, and the state is considering repealing that. But as Elizabeth Rosenthal, one of our editors at KFF Health News, and an, you know she's written an entire book about this, as she said, this is how our health system works. There's no laws saying this is how much you can upcharge for some intrinsic value of a medicine or of a service. So hospitals can do what they want. So, And we should point out, I mean, this is not a for-profit hospital, right? It's owned by the city. Yes, this is a nonprofit hospital owned by the city. And they don't get a ton of money from the city and or state, which is interesting, though. So they're really getting their funding from the services they provide. And the hospital said they tried to make it fair by comparing it to wholesale cost, what other hospitals in the region are charging. But they also said, yes, we do need to account for the 
higher costs. So so what's the takeaway here? I mean, that basically what it costs is going to depend on where you live? Basically, what we've learned from all these bill of the months is that it's going to vary depending on what facility you go to. And that could be within one city. The prices could vary. And then you might see some more variation between states and especially in states where the cost of living is higher or it's more remote. Of which Alaska is both. Yes. And, and actually something to add is that the amount of money that, that this hospital has to spend to fly in doctors and nurses and also just staff, even non-medical staff, they spent nearly $11 million last year to transport them and pay them because they don't have enough local people. I mean, and the other takeaway, though, is that, yes, this can be explained, but also it's unexplainable in the sense that our healthcare system doesn't have some magic formula or some hard rules about what is, quote, fair. Yes. I know, at least when it comes to Medicare, Congress has been trying to do that for, oh, I don't know, about 50 years now. (laughs) Still working on it. Arielle Zients, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at kffhealthnews.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Joanne, you've already done yours. Alice, why don't you go next? I did a piece by my former colleague, Angela Hart, for KFF. And it's about street medicine, so teams of doctors working with unhoused people. And this is profiling mainly in Northern California, but it's sort of discussing this across the country. And, you know, in addition to the really very moving personal stories that she found in her reporting, she also talked about some of the structural stuff that is supporting the expansion of this kind of health care. And so California was already putting a lot of money into healthcare services for the homeless, but in hospitals and in clinics. And they were finding that people just aren't able to come in, whether it's, you know, because they don't want to leave all of their earthly possessions unguarded or because they can't get the transportation or whatever. And so that money is now being redirected into having the doctors go to them, which seems to be successful in some ways. But the depth of healthcare problems is just so deep. And, but also the, really the importance of primary care. Absolutely. And so what they're finding is just a lot of pregnancies and, and problems with pregnancy in the homeless population. And so they're doing you know more services around that and more offering uh, contraception and prenatal care for the people who are already pregnant. It's very sad, but um, somewhat hopeful. And the other, the other more structural thing is changing rules so that doctors can get reimbursed at a decent rate for providing street medicine as opposed to uh, in brick and mortar facilities. Thanks, Lauren. So I, I also have a KFF special from my former colleagues, uh, Marky and Arenu, that is just a great, a great piece. It's called "Doctors Abandon a Diagnosis Used to Justify Police Custody Deaths. It Might Live On Anyway." So what what piece does is it interviews the doctor who helped debunk what excited delirium is for his medical organization. But it reveals that that may not help in terms of court cases that have already been decided and in terms of science in general. And I, I think it's so fascinating because what this piece does is it gets at what happens when flawed science then is used for lawsuits and consequential things for, for many, many years to come. I think we've seen a lot of stories this year, you know, about flawed science and what the actual ramifications are after. And this is clearly 
horrible ramifications here. And it's just kind of a fascinating question of, of how does that ever get made right? And how do things slowly or ever go back to what they should be after flawed science is revealed? So really, really great work from the team. Yeah, it's a really good piece. Um, well, keeping with the theme of choosing stories by our former colleagues, mine is from a former colleague at NPR, Jeff Brady, and it's called How Gas Utilities Use Tobacco Tactics to Avoid Gas Stove Regulations. And if you don't know what that refers to, I have a book or several for you about the huge sums of money that the tobacco industry paid over many decades to have captive scientific, quote unquote, experts counter claims that smoking is bad for your health. It turns out that the gas stove industry, likewise, knew that gas stoves were worse for your health than electric ones, and that those vent hoods uh, don't really take care of all the problems of the things that gas stoves emit, and that it also paid for studies intended to muddy the waters and confuse both customers and regulators. It's a pretty damning story, and I say that as someone who is very much attached to my gas stove, but am now having second thoughts. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks as always to our amazing and patient engineer Francis Ying. Also as always you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word at kff.org or you can still find me holding down the fort at X. I'm at Jay Rovner, also at Julie Rovner at Blue Sky and Threads. Joanne, where are you these days? I'm more on Threads, uh, Joanne Cannon 1. I still have a Twitter account, Joanne Cannon, where I'm not very active. <laughs> Alice. I'm at Alice Olsen on X and at Alice Miranda on Blue Sky. Lauren. I'm at Lauren Weber HP on X. The HP stands for health policy, as I like to tell people. <laughs> <laughs> we will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. Be healthy.